This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 192. Hey there, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm home after my summer vacation and ready to bring you more of my fresh new fiction. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 50 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In our last episode, Callie, Will, Lizzie, and Michael went to the home of District Attorney Wendell Schubert, a family friend of Lizzie's, and one of the few people they can trust to help them bring down the Brotherhood. Schubert took Will's statement about the kidnapping and torture that was inflicted on him and another abductee police psychologist Jared Tamlin. Lizzie then told him what they had uncovered about the cult in their research, that the Brotherhood is recruiting people through the Key and Arch Honor Society, a prestigious organization that includes some of the most powerful people in Metamore. Knowing that time is short to stop the Brotherhood's occult ritual, Schubert makes a series of phone calls to police whom he believes he can trust. But someone betrayed that trust, because soon a small army of SID officers surrounded Bayman Tower. If Schubert and Will allow themselves to be taken, they'll both be killed to keep them quiet. Looking for a way out, Callie contacts Kenning Security, where Evan, Brian, and Nathan are providing support for the mission. Evan directs them to a skybridge between the second and third levels, which connects Bayman to Grappen Tower. So far, the police don't seem to be watching it, but that won't last long. Callie and the others had better hurry. Michael decides on a diversion to buy time for the others. While Callie, Will, Lizzie, and Schubert head for the Sky Bridge, Michael has Evan set up a live WorldNet feed from the security cameras in Schubert's living room. Then Michael takes out his badge, gun, and identification, lays them out neatly at one end of the coffee table, and then handcuffs himself to the opposite end of the table. When the SWAT team arrives, Michael looks up and addresses the cameras. My name is Corporal Michael Pirelli. I have aided and abetted the actions of a group of criminals. I am here to surrender. The Lost in the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 50 Callie led the way as she and Lizzie escorted Will and the district attorney toward the heart of Bayman Tower. Like most of the city's older super skyscrapers, its upper levels were built in a three-ring structure. Residential housing on the outside, where windows could provide natural lighting, commercial and light manufacturing further in, and a central core with load-bearing support columns 
and the primary conduits for water, sewer, ventilation, and electricity. Passing through the core was the fastest way to travel from one side of the tower to the other, but access was restricted to maintenance workers and other authorized personnel, so most of the tower's residents had to take the longer route through the commercial zone. Fortunately, gaining access to places she wasn't authorized to go was one of Callie's specialties. Guided by the schematics Evan had sent them, Callie took her little band to an emergency exit at the back of Schubert's apartment complex. Mindful of the police presence in the building, she disabled the alarm system before they passed through it. The exit took them down a long, narrow corridor, which ended at one of the broad, curving avenues of the shopping district. Callie peeked out, took note of the shops around them, then ducked back down the hallway and reported their location to Evan. Tell the boys to shut down the cameras in this sector, Callie said. Evan's voice came back immediately, sounding pleased. Already done, my dear. Your route should be clear from there to maintenance sector G-12. Callie allowed herself a quick grin. If we get through this, I owe you all a kiss. We'll hold you to that, Evan said cheerfully. Now be quick, before security notices that we've looped the camera feed. After another quick glance at the building schematics, Callie beckoned to the others and headed off in a dead run. She hated being out in the open like this. The shopping avenue was broad and mostly unobstructed, and the shops themselves were all locked with roll-down gates. If someone showed up and started shooting at them, they wouldn't have any cover. The others kept up with her reasonably well. Lizzie had a cop's fitness training and a cat's athleticism. Schubert was carrying a lot of muscle under the fat and fluff, and Will was still riding the high from Morgan's vampire blood. They made it to the maintenance door without being seen. The door was made of reinforced steel and sealed with an electronic lock, but the security system was no match for Brian and Nathan. The card reader switched from red to green within seconds, and they were inside. Kelly took them down a corridor and into a narrow, arched passage. It bored through three meters of hardened steel and emerged into a vast, open, cylindrical shaft. Thick pipes and smaller conduits ran in ruler-straight lines against the walls of the shaft, carrying water and power up and waste back down. Narrow catwalks and ladders circled the shaft at regular intervals, providing access to the lines and making a thin, spidery web of connections between levels. The only light came from small sconces set intermittently into the walls above the catwalks, little glowing spots that stood out against the overall gloom. The network extended both above and below them until it disappeared into the darkness. I've read about these, Will said, his voice low and full of awe. This is what holds up the tower, isn't it? This one and a few others like it, Callie agreed. It's also the best way to move up and down without being seen. She pointed to a spot on the far side of the shaft, about fifteen meters below them. That's where we want to be. From down there we can reach the sky bridge over to Grappen. She looked around at all three of them. Everybody watch your step. You step off one of these? She patted the railing of the catwalk, which for her was a little more than waist-high and there's nothing to break your fall till you hit the top of the reactor housing. Lizzie and Schubert said nothing, 
but their fur ruffled visibly at Callie's words. Will looked over the edge and swallowed hard. They made their way, as quickly as they dared, around the walls of the shaft and down five stories worth of ladders. Then they took another one of the arched tunnels back out to a more conventional-looking set of passageways. Identifying numbers were painted in fluorescent white at regular intervals on the walls. Apart from that, there was nothing to distinguish one floor or passage from another. Callie repeatedly checked the map, and eventually led them back out of the maintenance sector and into the commercial zone. Almost immediately, Callie's phone started crackling. Ferret! Ferret, come in! Evan's voice sounded almost angry. I'm here, Callie said. About bloody time! I've been trying to reach you for five minutes! We were in the bones, Callie said, irritated. Why are you wasting time bitching at me, Evan? What's up? What's up is that the bloody blues looked up and saw the sky bridge, Evan said. They're on the way to secure it. You have maybe two minutes at most. Shit, Callie muttered. She jammed the phone in her pocket and started running. The others fell in behind her. The sky bridge had a direct connection into the shopping plaza on this level so they didn't run into the sort of quiet, residential sector they had just escaped from. What they did find was an entertainment district, a 24-hour movie theater surrounded by bars and restaurants. Quote-unquote outdoor dining areas spilled out into the broad avenue in front of their establishments, cordoned off by velvet ropes attached to brass posts. Lines of people ran out of the theater and down the hall, waiting to be seated for the latest blockbuster. Still others milled around in the open spaces in between, having loud and animated conversations and being generally oblivious to everything around them. The commercial zone went from having no people to hundreds of people in the space of just twenty meters. Shit. The map hadn't told her about this. Or maybe it had and she hadn't noticed. Callie and the others didn't stop but they slowed their run to a fast walk, both so they wouldn't look so conspicuous and so they wouldn't run anyone over. Lizzie and Schubert, at least, knew how to blend in. The leopard morph wrapped an arm around her uncle in a sideways hug, and the two topsiders started chatting casually about something Callie couldn't understand. A sport, maybe, but she didn't know enough of the jargon they were using to be sure. Will, though, was a wreck twitching his head around like a frightened bird, his eyes wide, his teeth grinding, his hands scratching distractedly at his arms. Kelly had never gotten high on Vamp's blood, but she knew the look. The farm boy was in sensory overload. He's gonna lose it. His eyes stopped twitching around long enough to lock on her, and Kelly saw his lips form her name. Kelly felt sick. I got you into this shitstorm, she thought miserably. I did this to you. She stopped, turned fully around, and wrapped him in a tight hug. Kelly? Will said, his voice almost a whimper. Shh, Callie said, running a hand through his hair. You're okay. I've got you. We don't have time for this, a voice shouted inside her head. No shit. Callie snarled back at the voice. 
Fuck off, will ya? I'm busy here. You're all right, she said aloud, murmuring directly into Will's ear. You're safe. I've got you. Lies, the voice inside her said. You can't keep him safe. I can try, Callie thought back stubbornly. Then you'll both die, the voice shot back. Will was sobbing now. I... I don't understand what's happening to me. I know, Callie said. A lifetime of practice kept her voice calm and steady, hiding the churning emotions inside her. I'll get you through it, Will. Trust me. You have to cut him loose, the voice said. It's the only way you can save him. He's not cut out for this world. But Will was wrapping his arms around her now, squeezing her tightly. Okay, he whispered, and in that one word Callie heard all the faith Will had placed in her. A child's faith, the voice told her. Stupid. Naive. Callie gritted her teeth. Fuck off, she told the voice again. I'm getting us both out of here. We're almost there. We just need our luck to hold a little bit longer. Lizzie and Schubert kept walking, pretending that Will's predicament had nothing to do with them. The detective made a show of stopping to study each of the restaurants, as if they were deciding where to eat, all the while watching Will and Callie out of the corner of her eye. Callie put her arm around Will's shoulder and steered him toward the sky bridge. Will looked at the ground, as if putting one foot in front of the other required all his concentration. As they drew closer, Lizzie casually backed up into Callie's path. I don't think I like the look of this place, she said, as if she were still speaking to Schubert. Let's find somewhere else. As she spoke, she flicked the tip of her tail in the direction of the sky bridge. Callie followed the motion and froze. Four uniformed officers were coming across the sky bridge from Grappen Tower. Another cop in plain clothes, recognizable by his earpiece, stance, and the way he carried his concealed weapon under his jacket, stood talking to a group of security guards on the Bayman side, scanning the crowd with hard, intense eyes. They didn't seem to have spotted Schubert in the crowd yet, but it was only a matter of time. Too late. Callie thought as her heart sank. We're already too late. Kate and Murakir had just finished their inspection of the casting circle when Morgan came back inside. The vampire had shed her black leather duster and now wore only a thin white camisole that exposed her arms to mid-bicep. There you are, Kate said. Everything all right? We're working on that, Morgan said. Do you remember that glamour you used on me a while back? The one that made me look human for a few hours? Kate frowned. Yeah, why? Morgan drew close, lightly touching a hand to Kate's arm. Could you do it again? John and I are going to arrange a distraction for the cultists. It will work better if there's no risk that someone might recognize me. A stab of fear rose up out of nowhere, burying itself in Kate's heart. I don't want you taking any stupid risks. You're not runners, you're not mercs. I know, darling, 
Morgan said, squeezing her arm. I know, but we're the ones who are here, and John and I are far from helpless. The fear twisted again inside Kate, joined by an impotent, frustrated anger. I'm the one who got you into this. She blinked back sudden tears and looked Morgan straight in the eyes. I should be out there with you. Morgan smiled tenderly. Not this time, love. And you know why. Because something's broken inside me, Kate thought bitterly. If I froze up again, they'd have to waste time protecting me instead of focusing on the mission. All right, give me a minute to remember the spell. She closed her eyes and delved back into the recesses of her mind, building connections from one memory to the next. The coffee shop where they had been sitting, Malcolm Ardvalos on the television, Morgan's complaint that she could not yet disguise her vampiric nature as well as Malcolm could. The glamour spell returned to her thoughts like a complex mathematical equation, and Kate considered each of its interlocking parts in turn, forming a picture of the spell weave in her mind. Then she drew her Arthana, called up mana out of her reserves, and released the spell at Morgan. Immediately, Morgan's skin darkened, taking on a medium-brown shade that disguised her lack of blood flow. Her makeup changed as well, from the violet eyeshadow and dark red lipstick to subtler earth tones better suited to her new complexion. She could have passed for half a Rhombian, or a dark-skinned Sangafilder, or one of the more ethnically mixed inhabitants of Fanshuar. Morgan looked down at her hands and arms, nodding in satisfaction. Thank you, darling. This should do nicely. Kate put away her dagger and gave Morgan a stern look. Just be careful, okay? We already had to rescue Will and now Tamlin. I don't need anybody else to worry about. Morgan stepped forward and hugged her tightly. I love you too, Kate. Despite all her bitterness, frustration, and anxiety, Kate found herself melting into Morgan's touch. The tears welled up in her eyes again. I know, she whispered. Kate heard the shop door open again behind Morgan. Then a woman's voice she didn't recognize said, Aw, you two are so sweet together. Kate quickly broke the hug and turned to face the intruder, her hand moving to the hilt of the Arthana. The woman watching them was of medium height, young, blonde, and attractive, with eyes of a rich sapphire blue. She wore Morgan's duster, tied with the belt at her waist, and she had left it unzipped enough to show that she was topless underneath. Who the hell? Kate began, then stopped. The face might not be familiar, but the smirk certainly was. Oh, Eli. John? The woman's eyes flashed bright yellow, just for a moment. Jasmine isn't the only Daedra who can change sexes, you know. Kate looked back at Morgan. What sort of distraction are you planning? Morgan smiled and told her. If that actually works, Kate said, dubiously, our next coffee date is on me. Morgan planted a kiss on Kate's cheek. Have fun with your incantation, darling. If all goes well, we'll be back before reinforcements arrive. All right, but I mean it. Be careful. 
She looked up at John, and without quite meaning to, she added, Both of you. John gave her a knowing smile. Oh, gods, Kate thought as the heat rose into her cheeks. I'm getting attached to a priest of hedonism. Great job, Kate. Great taste in boyfriends you've got there. Morgan and John left, and Kate slumped onto one of the nearby work stools. She put her head in her hands. You love them, Murakir said. He spoke with a kind of observational detachment, like a man commenting on the weather. A day ago, Kate might have argued about that where John was concerned. Yes, she said, annoyed. That is unwise, Murray said, in the same tone as before. Fuck you, Kate muttered. The skunk man seemed unbothered by Kate's retort. He circled around the spell markings and stood in her field of vision, a couple of meters away. They still love each other, Murray said. That much is obvious, even to an outsider like myself. They will both live for centuries, perhaps millennia, and over that long span of years, neither of them will remain as they are. The older they become, the more their essence will define them. They will become monsters. Kate glared up at him. You're immortal. You've been alive for, what, thirteen hundred years? Are you a monster? The fur on Murakir's tail ruffled slightly. Yes, he said, and still his tone did not change. They stared at each other for a long moment, the mage's huge, dark eye reflecting the walls of the shop around them. Kate suppressed a shiver. It will take all my efforts to persuade the mountain to open a channel to the ley line, Murakir said. I will need you to enter the line and redirect its flow into the channel I create. Kate felt her eyes widen. Can I do that? You have stood in the heart of Kaya's nexus without ill effect, Murray said. This is no more dangerous than that. He paused, then added, Perhaps it is more challenging, though. Kate snorted and shook her head. Always did love a challenge. All right, monster. Let's get to work. And that's the end of Chapter 50. Come back next time, when Callie has to make some quick decisions, and Michael faces the consequences of his surrender. George Gordon Byron said, If I do not write to empty my mind, I go mad. So, let's open the taps and let the crazy out. Here's your weekly writing report. Over the last three weeks, I wrote 10,783 words in 14 hours, averaging 770 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 266 days without breaking my chain. On Tuesday, I got back home after an epic two-week road trip. Mel and the dogs and I traveled to Michigan to see my folks, 
to New York for the wedding of Metamore City librarian Mildred Cady, down to Virginia Beach to see Mel's family, and then to the Blue Ridge Mountains for some hiking and relaxation in southwestern Virginia and northwestern North Carolina. I did do some writing during the first week of the trip, continuing my work on the Dark Lord Steve. During the second week, I had a harder time getting quiet time alone, so I switched gears and tackled the publishing project that I've been meaning to do for a long time now. Last year, I purchased a program called Vellum, which allows me to prepare manuscripts for publication much more quickly and easily than in the past. For my first four books, I had to lay out the ebook with one program, and then use a desktop publishing program to create the paperback version, essentially from scratch. Both of these programs were kind of buggy and not very user-friendly, and it took a long time for me to get books ready for market. After I got Vellum, I used it to publish The Lost and the Least, and it was so much easier I could hardly believe it. I used it again for Homecoming, and it went just as smoothly. Ever since then, I knew I needed to go back and reformat my four previous books in Vellum as well. The trouble was finding the time to do it. Well, this vacation gave me lots of free time, especially during our long hours of travel from one destination to the next. So I jumped in and got to work, and on Tuesday I got the last of the old books submitted for republication. Issuing second editions of the books also gave me the opportunity to make some other improvements I've been meaning to implement. I added the world maps to all of the books. I fixed some typos and formatting issues. I added original artwork from Randall Fulton, Ben Clifford, and Carol Foote. And for making the cut, I added a new author's note, which addresses some important things I've learned about gender identity and gender expression since I first wrote the book. And for the e-books, I've lowered the price of all the books to $2.99 US, which seems to be the price point that maximizes overall profitability. If you've already purchased the e-books, you should be able to download the newest versions to your e-book reader without any trouble. And if you're a Patreon subscriber at the $15 level or higher, you get access to all of the new versions at no additional charge. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And now, the feedback. Chris Finston writes, Hi Chris, it's been a long time. It's taken me a while, but I'm finally caught up on the lost in the least. And I have to say, God's how I miss this city. As with many things, life got in the way, and I lost track of the podcast for a while. However, that's all in the past now, and I'm back to being a faithful listener. My only issue now is that I'm all caught up on the lost in the least, and now you're on a break. Even so, I've loved it so far. I love how so many different threads are now coming together in what I'm sure is going to be a dramatic, and hopefully not too tragic, climax. One thing that really piqued my interest was Murray's mention of Morgan eventually losing her humanity. Knowing that this is possibly inevitable, it makes me wonder how it will affect her moving forward. Anyway, I just wanted to say I'm loving the novel so far, and you've got a faithful listener from now on. Cheers, Chris. Hey, thanks, Chris, and welcome back. As I said in response to Sarah's voicemail in the last episode, Murray is definitely projecting when it comes to issues of immortality and losing one's humanity. 
Yes, it's a danger, and one that Morgan and John will always have to be conscious of, but it's our connections to others that keep us human, and both Morgan and John are the sorts of people who hold on tightly to the folks they care about. Assuming that they survive the end of the age, which, according to both Sephi and Lord Klepnos, is only a few years away, I think there's a good chance that Morgan and John could prove Murakir wrong. In the meantime, they both have more pressing matters to deal with. Great to hear from you, and thanks for coming back to Metamore City. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.